Welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, Tarun and I chat with Brian and Richard from the ZK P2P project. ZK P2P is one of the first ZK applications for real users. It uses ZK email under the hood and is a peer-to-peer fiat to crypto on-ramp and off-ramp. And I feel extra happy to have them on the show since the first iteration of the product was built at ZK Hack Lisbon back in March 2023. ZK P2P came in second place at that event, and the team continued to iterate and develop the product over the last year. Now, in our conversation, we cover the opportunities and challenges of building applications with ZK at this time, how it is still very early and there's a lot of tooling missing, but also how it's a very exciting time to jump in. We talk about the goals of the project, how a user could actually use ZKP2P, what is happening under the hood, the types of experiments and initiatives the project is running, as well as some of the challenges of building alongside Web2 systems. Now, before we kick off, I want to remind you that the ZKPod flagship event, that is ZK Summit 11, is happening in Athens on April 10th. This is an invite-only event, and space is limited. There is an application process, and you do need to apply to be eligible for a ticket. I've added the link in the show notes, and I hope to see you there. Now, Tanya will share a little bit about this week's sponsor. Launching soon, Namada's a proof-of-stake L1 blockchain focused on multi-chain asset-agnostic privacy via a unified set. Namada is natively interoperable with fast finality chains via IBC and with Ethereum using a trust-minimized bridge. Any compatible assets from these ecosystems, whether fungible or non-fungible, can join Namada's unified shielded set, effectively erasing the fragmentation of privacy sets that has limited multi-chain privacy guarantees in the past. By remaining within the shielded set, users can utilize shielded actions to engage privately with applications on various chains, including Ethereum, Osmosis, and Celestia, that are not natively private. Namada's unique incentivization is embodied in its shielded set rewards. These rewards function as a bootstrapping tool, rewarding multi-chain users who enhance the overall privacy of Namada participants. Follow Namada on Twitter, at Namada, for more information, and join the community on Discord, discord.gg forward slash Namada. And now, here's our episode. Today, Tarun and I are here with Brian and Richard from the ZK P2P Project. Welcome to the show. Hi, how's it going? Great to be here. Hey, yeah. Great to be here as well. Yeah, long-time listener. (laughs) Cool. Hello, Tarun. Hey. So in this episode, we are going to be exploring the project ZK P2P, which is a trustless peer-to-peer fiat-to-crypto on-ramp and off-ramp powered by ZK. And... I sort of feel a special affinity to this project because I first learned about it at ZK Hack Lisbon in March 2023. The ZK P2P team was like a participant, and actually this project came in second at our hackathon. That was the first time we ran a ZK-focused hackathon, so there's just like, yeah, it was it was incredibly cool that you guys came in second, and then it was so cool that you went, you continued with it. So I'm really excited to have you back on the show to hear more about the project and yeah, what's happened since. Yeah, excited, excited to be here. Like I said, and yeah, it's it's been a fun run since uh, ZK Summit Nine and, and I think the first ZK hack. Nice. Yeah, exactly. Really excited to talk more about this and um, yeah, talk about basically the complete opposite of most of the historical episodes on the show, where it's focused on research and in in terms of the land of I guess ZK application development. Totally. 
Um, I want to ask, where did the idea originally come from? And I kind of always was curious, like, was this a project that sort of had already been brewing before the hackathon? Had you worked on ZK email before? Yeah. Where where did the idea come from? So we originally came up with the idea at um, Starkware Sessions in, in Tel Aviv. We were just sitting around, me, Richard, and uh, actually two other team members, Sachin and Alex. We were all out there. We're even a little unclear who, who exactly like kind of started it, but I think Sachin, Sachin was having some frustrations with on-ramping using Binance P2P in, in India. Mm-hmm. So that's where he's based. And, uh, you know, we'd been looking at different ZK stuff and uh, had come across ZK email and realized like, oh, this is potentially something we could use to, to prove some sort of off-chain payment. So then it's like, okay, well, what, what can you do with that? And one of the obvious things I think that, that came to mind was like, oh, maybe you could do some sort of like on-ramp, off-ramp type idea. And we actually rushed home. <laughs> I didn't rush home. We, we went home and we were like, okay, we have another, another day in Tel Aviv, like after the conference, let's try to hack this together. Uh, very quickly ran into, <laughs> into a lot of issues, just getting set up. And uh, we, actually after that, we're like, maybe we should do a company just helping people set up like their ZK proving systems and all that sort of thing. Yeah, so it, it kind of like came out of there and then we were all gonna be in, in Lisbon for, for ZK hack. And um, we were just kind of like thinking of things to do and we're like, well, this is a really cool idea. What, you know, I think people would be a little inspired by it too. It's like kind of, uh, you know, there's a little bit of a subversive quality to it. And uh, so we thought it was just like a really fun idea. We knew we had, it was probably achievable with, with ZK email, but we didn't really have, we obviously didn't really have any of the, the work done. So that was just kind of a grind throughout the, the weekend to, to kind of actually implement it. So cool. What were you both doing before? And actually maybe what were your teammates doing before all of this? Uh, so we were all at um, Set Protocol. So that's like uh-huh. an on-chain index uh, structured product type protocol. Um, and we'd all kind of got ZK pilled around the same time. I think actually Sachin was uh, the one who kind of ZK pilled uh, a lot of us. Myself, Richard, and, and Alex have been working together since 2018 at SET. Sachin joined, I think, like 2021. So we've all, you know, been working together for, for a long time. Mm. Um, and yeah, so we were, we were all just kind of helping out with that project. And we kind of like took the last little bit over a year to do, do ZK exploration. And we, yeah, just hacked around, built ZK P2P and also worked on building a couple random libraries for various projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were playing around with like Axiom's Halo 2 library and also uh, built something uh, for Aztec, uh, okay. their Noir RSA. This is in the last year. Yeah, last year. But just going back, so you were all at Set Protocol. So you you actually were colleagues. You knew how to work together already. It was clear who was going to be doing what. <laughs> okay. <laughs> at Set, was there any ZK in any of the work you were doing then? Or was it like completely outside of uh, yeah what you were up to? It was pretty outside. We'd kind of entered this time period of exploration within Set. Okay. Um, and trying to figure out kind of like what was next for for the company to a certain extent at that time there's a little bit of just like let's go see what's new out there like what are, what are the technologies that could enable you know the next thing mm-hmm. and so 
in, in that respect, we were all kind of starting that research internally, which is partly why we were out at Starkware sessions too. Yeah, um, was just to kind of learn, <laughs> yes. but we you know never end up like implementing anything using zk, but but had started some exploration there. So you know, given that set was sort of pretty early in terms of like being an on-chain application in DeFi, right? Like it, I mean, arguably, I think set probably existed before the word DeFi existed. So that's like, we were, uh, we were in the original Telegram group. We actually, right, right, I right. Think the the NJ, Dharma one, right? Yeah, yeah. One of one of our <laughs> colleagues, I think, uh, may have even come up with the, the DeFi moniker, although I'm sure really? that's a very, uh, a <gasps> very contested, contested <laughs> thing. Correct, <laughs> wow. correct, correct. But yeah. you guys were definitely in the, the Genesis cohort. So that's why I think it's interesting that like you kind of worked on an application on Ethereum before there were real applications other than, you know, ICOs at that time. And, <laughs> you know, it probably feels similar in ZK, right? Because like, you know, maybe as, as as even you just pointed out, a lot of the stuff in ZK is so focused on infrastructure and not really focused on applications. So how do you think about the lessons you learned from being, you know, on the first Ethereum apps when there was no other apps to kind of being in the same position again? And like, what have you kind of taken from that because like i think that to me that's kind of one of the the most interesting overlaps in the, the story hmm. yeah i mean i think you just really have to be kind of you know you're gonna have to build or or struggle around with a lot of like the tooling yourself just from like a technical standpoint i i try to think like where's the zk tooling in relation to kind of like the smart contract tooling uh, back then i would say zk tooling is even probably a little worse than what the smart contract tooling was <laughs> in, in 2017. Um, it, you know, it's not, yeah, it wouldn't yeah. be that far behind maybe, but. Makes sense. Um, it only gets better by people building something and being like, this is this broken, right? So like. Yeah. Exactly. Well, you, and you need, you also need like the, kind of needs to work both sides of the funnel, right? You need the demand, mm -hmm. for, you need the people that are just interested in building that stuff. Then you also need the demand for application developers to be like, this is painful. Yeah. And they either have like somebody else builds it because they see the 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 use for it, or often like you know back in the 2017 days, we were all using like zero x libraries because zero x was like oh I have to you know we have to build this mm. um, or truffle or truffle yeah to forget about <laughs> it was usually it was usually some mishmash of truffle and zero x like some Frankenstein monster I feel like. <laughs> but then there's this other element of like okay you know you ha you have tech that can do something but you're trying to figure out really what its limits are people just weren't didn't know everything you could do with smart contracts like as weird as that mm -hmm. says it, it kind of like sounds it's just just kind of the, the the case uh and uh, obviously like the silly language wasn't very futureful there were all these kind of like quirks of it and like pitfalls and um so you're trying to constantly figure out like what you can actually build and what you can build that's like meaningful. So there's this like weird experimentation process you have to go through much more than like, you know, a lot of companies like, okay, we're building this. And there's obviously some experimentation in there, but you're not, you know, you're not deviating too far from the plan. Mm. Whereas here, there's a lot of like, you have an idea of what you want to build, but you're also like, some of your core pieces may be shifting. Like, you know, we use ZK email, but we're also like, well, what else is out there that we can use to prove off-chain data? And yeah, as app developers, we kind of push the limit of what you can do with an underlying library, and that kind of improves uh, the library underneath. So we basically take the most simple example 
of like what ZK email had in their repo. And then let's try to prove this massive like Venmo email. Yeah. Uh, that's like several times larger and see where it breaks. And then that kind of like creates feedback for us to, yeah, talk to the ZK email team and kind of help them on, hey, where, where, where should we like improve the library? And so, yeah, that's a really great like feedback loop that app developers kind of feed towards um, more, I guess, lower level primitives and the relationship we have with them, I guess. It's a very funny analogy that like ZK email is the zero X for you guys, you know, like that. that. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's like um, we're almost like more directly integrating ZK email than zero. Like zero X, we just use their tooling. You know, mm. we weren't like they weren't an integral part of the product. Like ZK email is very much like a, a core part of, of, of what we're building too. So it's- I just like it, the story of this, right? Like it's like kind of, it's like interesting to think about like the early days of DeFi and the early totally. days of ZK apps and like things that are similar. And the fact that they have similar people involved is like yeah. kind of a, <laughs> a very cool thing. If you, I mean, so you just kind of said ZK today has tooling that's worse than smart contract tooling back then, 2017. <laughs> what, is there a different era that you think ZK is actually at? Like, is ZK today more like Ethereum one year post-launch or something? So I can't speak too much to too much before 2017. Okay. So yeah, I, I unfortunately, my history doesn't go back that far. It's not- <laughs> I'm also a 2017 joiner, by the way, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess on my end, I can speak to one year earlier. Okay. 2017 uh, and i think in 2016 was when like stuff like ether delta was coming out mm. right like the first like instance of what it looks like to have a smart contract that can like escrow funds and perform like act as an order book uh no matter how i guess centralized it is so it could be that zk is kind of in that era where you can kind of start piecing together all the libraries all the proving system tooling out there to build like that ether delta wow. kind of application, which is kind of kind of analogizes with what we're what we did with uh, zkp2p. Mm. I want to ask a little bit more about your kind of onboarding yourselves into zk as well. I mean, I get that you had this sort of period of time where you were researching, but like, what could you find? What are the resources for like application developers who are super familiar with smart contract architectures? I don't know if you have some advice for them, how to get involved or like what you actually, like how did you kind of like navigate this? Uh, yeah, I can speak to that um, since I basically kind of went from zero knowledge of ZK to I guess some knowledge now uh, since <laughs> I guess ZK, a little Z over a year do, ago. Do you remember the ZK ZK roll-ups? Oh yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Actually, another project at ZK Hack Lisbon was the ZK 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 rollup, which exists <laughs> in the world. But anyway, yeah. Okay, so you were zero knowledge on zero knowledge. Yeah. So I think the first thing I ever did was probably just go over all of the zero X Park initial videos they had back in the day. Yeah. On like introduction to Circom. Uh, I think for me at least, I had to probably rewatch those videos like two or three times. Mm. Um, just to get get into it. And then I actually watched a lot of the ZK Hack whiteboarding sessions oh, yeah. uh, to get familiar with the theory. Cool, cool. So it's kind of interesting in ZK, you kind of, as an app developer, you do have to dive into the theory. Otherwise, yeah, it, it's really hard to just get started. I guess over the last year-ish, it was 
basically alternating between like like watching YouTube videos on theory and like trying to get my hands dirty writing um, some circuit code. Um, and yeah, that kind of culminated at like ZK Hack, where we try to put all those things together. What's the sort of language track that you found kind of easiest to get into? Like, or maybe which one you did? Because I feel like there are now a lot of these ZK DSLs, and they are, you know, these different ecosystems are building up tooling around them. It sounds like you started with Circom. Is that sort of the line you took? So it was like Circom Halo stuff? Or was there, did you explore any of the other ZK DSLs? I started with Circom because they had the most, I guess, content out mm -hmm. there when I started. Um, then I did go the Halo route because that was the next in terms of number of YouTube videos available to me. <laughs> uh, but I did do a couple months exploring uh, Noir when that was kind of coming up mm. uh, like last year. Do you have like a procedure for when you explore a new DSL? Like you have some set of programs that you try to implement that you're like, this is like my way of comparing them, like some sort of suite of things like Fibonacci or something, you know, like I feel, I feel like everyone ha when they learn a new programming language has like X set of things that they re-implement just to see how hard or easy it is. Like what's sort of your learning stack in that sense? Yeah. So at the very beginning of, I guess, learning the DSL, it is probably that Fibonacci like or whatever is available like in the YouTube video, right? And you just kind of follow along and implement along with them. As I get more familiar with the code, uh, I do find that implementing something new that's not available in that language helps me learn the fastest. Mm. Uh, so for example, for uh, when I was learning Noir, they didn't have that RSA library. So I kind of took a stab at implementing that library, which wasn't available. In, in that language by referring to, I guess, CIRCOM mm -hmm. and Halo 2 implementations. And that kind of like helped me learn a lot much faster. That's really cool. So I think it would be really good for us to jump into ZKP2P and the project itself. But before we do that, I actually want to revisit ZK email. You've mentioned this a few times as basically something that ZKP2P is built on top of or with. And we have done an episode on this show back in, I think, November, December, where we did an, an episode with ZK Login and ZK Email, where we talked about kind of what those are and how they could be used. But I want to revisit first ZK Email here and just maybe go over again what it is. And then I want to understand how exactly you used it. Because I know I left that interview roughly knowing how ZK Email works, but I think with like a build on top I might get a better picture for like what you can actually do with it. Um, so the ZK email library that a ZKP2P is built on essentially is, I guess, two packages. Uh, one is using ZK to verify that the email is signed by like the private key of like the mail server of the person who has sent the email. Mm -hmm. uh, and the second package is ZK regex which is using a ZK circuit to extract uh, specific, I guess, information from that email uh, while preserving and redacting all the other parts of the email, essentially preserving privacy um, of other contents that you don't need in the email. I guess ZKP2P uses both uh, the email verification uh, side and also the ZK regex. So on the email verification, it basically ensures that the RSA signature uh, that's present in the email is, in fact, what the hash of the email is signing. Mm -hmm. So 
you can basically ensure that the email is signed by Venmo in our case. Uh, no one else can spoof any email because that signature would not match Venmo's, I guess, private key that has signed it. In this case, you're trying to just connect the email of the user to Venmo, like saying like, yes, they also have a Venmo account. You're just kind of proving that like this email and there is a Venmo account that's equivalent exist. Is that what you're trying to do? We're basically proving that the email came from Venmo's server. I guess in theory, there's another step of logic there of like having to prove that it's the user's account. Mm. You're basically proving that whoever has possession, let's say possession of the email, you're, you're, pro you're essentially proving possession of that email. Okay. And you're also proving that that email came from the Venmo server. Got it. So when, and when you're saying email, I think I kind of mixed it up. I think I thought an email account, but you're saying the email itself, like the actual sent email from Venmo to an account. Right. But you're just proving that that has come from Venmo. Yeah. And this is the, I guess, the email verification package that ZK email offers. Okay. Um, and then the next step is that ZK regex. Uh, where you're basically proving that this piece of data, such as you paid this guy X dollars, mm -hmm. you can basically regex or extract out that piece of data and prove that that piece of data was in that email. Interesting. And that was also signed by Venmo. Are you doing that just based on like the template email that Venmo always sends? Is like you know where it is in the email, and so you can kind of just like say that this has happened in this exact like character point in the email? Yeah, at a high level, that's basically it. Oh, interesting. But what happens if Venmo changes their template? <laughs> that, that is a good question. Uh, that would require a redeployment of the circuit. I see. Uh, right now. Okay. Yeah, it's one of the, it's one of the kind of like the, the brittle features right now of kind of using email and obviously by extension kind of ZKP2P2. Is yeah, there there you know, there are some of these like risks of template changing and things like that. Would there be any way to do kind of almost like a search for a format instead of relying on like the exact point in the email, or is that sort of beyond the scope of the zk regex module and stuff like that? So that's what zk regex does today. We basically specify beforehand like what is that regex expression that searches the email for. Mm. Um, there's some additional logic to it, such as specifying like on at which index we think this regex will start searching from. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that, that's more, I guess, in the weeds. If Venmo changed the template then, if it did have like that, that transfer amount in a different point, could you still use it to find it? Or would you have to manually go in and be like, ah, it has moved, therefore we need to redeploy it? So usually, I guess, when Venmo changes their template, they would change the HTML, like mm -hmm. tags that surround it as well, uh, which kind of break the regex search, depending okay. on how stringent we make. I see. Because you're not looking for a text string. You're looking for some like block in the email or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I guess we look for the text, text string and all the blocks that surround that okay. text string. So if any of the blocks that surround a text string change, then we can't find it. that text string anymore. Okay. That's interesting. I mean, I really appreciate you kind of showing that in that detail because that has, like, this is where I think some of the ZK email build, for me, was sort of still very theoretical. Like, a, But this makes it a little bit more clear on exactly how it's 
used and how what it can do? Yeah. So from the, the user perspective, essentially what we're doing is we're proving uh, confirmation emails that you receive from Venmo. So for people who aren't familiar, when you send a transaction or send somebody money on, on Venmo, you receive uh, a confirmation email basically saying like you sent some amount to so-and-so. And so essentially what we do then is we will take that email and kind of submit it to our, our circuit and it'll run the, the, the verifications that Richard was talking about, right? So it'll run the, uh, the RSA check. And then alongside that, this is all kind of abstracted away from the user mm-hmm. in the UI, obviously, but alongside that, we'll also submit kind of like the amount and things like that. And then we can check that against the regex. And then those will be output from in the proof as like the signals that we're, we're verifying against in in our like smart contract, basically. Mm. Um, so the flow is basically user comes, brings the email, runs it through the circuit. The output of that circuit is now some kind of like blob of data. That blob of data gets submitted to our verifier on chain. Mm-hmm. And that verifier then is, is able to say like, okay, this is a valid, most importantly, this is a valid proof. And then we check a couple other things like, is does the from address match the expected Venmo from address? Because in theory, like it could be Venmo, like a Venmo employee's email. So you need to make sure that's from like the the address that sends the those confirmation emails. Um, and then we also are, are doing we do some like nullification of emails so you can't kind of like replay them. Mm-hmm. Those the broad strokes are, yeah. are kind of like some of the checks that we have on just the email. And then there's obviously business logic checks that happen after. And a lot of those business logic checks will will do on the kind of the, the signals that are output as part of the proof. And so that would be like the amount, like, did you send the right amount? Mm-hmm. Did you send, send it to the right person? Obviously, we do some checks to make sure that the email was sent after the funds were originally escrowed. Uh, on-chain, things like that. So it does sound like there's two actions happening, right? Like there's a transfer on Venmo from one user to another, and then there's a transfer on-chain from one account to another, right? right? Yeah, maybe kind of work out the steps here. From a user's perspective, they send to a Venmo account. Is it your Venmo account? Is it like some specific... Venmo account, or is it like anyone anywhere's Venmo account? It's like their friend who's also running the same thing. <laughs> yeah, great, great question. Um, <laughs> so yeah, if you step back even further, like the first step for the user is saying like, okay, I want, you know, I want ten dollars on chain or mm-hmm. whatever, maybe hundred dollars on chain. Yeah. And so what we have is we have uh, depositors in our protocol, and this can be anyone, and mm-hmm. it is anyone. Right now, obviously, we do we provide some liquidity as well, just because we like using our own product. But uh, anybody can do it. And what you do is you say, okay, I want ten dollars, and everybody can specify a rate at which they're willing to facilitate this on ramp for. So, like, you may say, okay, I want to get paid, you know, fifty basis points to facilitate an on ramp. Mm-hmm. Or if you're like need to off ramp really fast, maybe like I- I'm willing to like pay to get this money off chain, right? Okay. So you could say like. I'll pay 50 basis points to get this money off chain. What is that in percentages? Like, is, I'm just assuming that's Sorry, like an yeah, extra half percent. percent. Half a percent. Half okay. a percent. Yeah. yeah. Then like as a, as a, someone who wants to on-ramp, you can go essentially have this like on-chain bulletin board 
of people saying like, okay, I, you know, I'm willing to help you on ramp for uh, you know, some sort of spread. Yeah. And you choose, you can choose your best price or you can choose somebody that you're like familiar with, mm -hmm. however you want to do it. Okay. Um, and then from that point, say I want to you know, on ramp $10, you say, okay, I'm going to on ramp $10 to this depositor. And that $10 is then put into escrow in our smart mm -hmm. contract. So it's already, the money's already in the smart contract, but we're basically setting it aside now. We're like saying, okay, this $10 is set aside for right now, 24 hours for the on-ramper to complete the transaction. And so then, you know, in our UI, it'll pop up a nice little QR code and you can scan the QR code and it'll, you know, show, it'll bring up the person you're supposed to, to Venmo. Mm -hmm. um, and so then you, you know, we'll also display like the amount that you need to Venmo. You send them that Venmo. And then here there's like, we offer a couple options. So the least friendly option or least user-friendly option, at least from just like a user experience perspective is you can copy and paste the email. So you can go and actually get the raw email and copy and paste it into a modal. Mm -hmm. uh, the other option uh, that we offer is you can Google auth. So if your, you know, Venmo account is tied to a, a G, you know, your Gmail, mm -hmm. you could Google auth in, uh, and then just like select the email that you want to have proved. Okay. And obviously like our, our front end is all open source. I mean, I understand there's definitely people who, you know, cause we, we are getting read access to your emails. So I understand the people that don't want to use it. Mm -hmm. uh, but our, our, our front end is fully open source. Mm -hmm. So you can see that there's no, we're not sending those, <laughs> okay. all your emails off somewhere yeah, yeah. else. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so then you, you select the email and then, then you have another option. Uh, you can either prove it locally. So that would be on your computer, which mm -hmm. I think I'm sure as your listeners know, that ZK proofs are pretty computationally intensive. Uh, so that takes about 10 to 15 minutes. Uh, or there's a, uh, a remote, uh, proving instance that we have where you can send the email to the remote instance and we'll generate that proof in about 30 seconds. And then that gets returned to the client, uh, to the front end. Mm -hmm. And from there you submit a, a transaction on chain. And as part of that transaction, we we do all that proof validation I was talking about. And that releases the funds for the user. And now you've basically paid $10 or let's say $10 and 50 cents, no, $10 and five cents <laughs> off chain. If it's a 50 basis point spread and receive 10 USDC. Okay. Okay. So that you sort of mentioned this escrow process. I wanted to understand if that was USDC or US dollars because USDC. like, yes. So you're, yeah, the escrowing on chain is obviously on chain USDC. You start there. You basically say like, but wait, like in this case, if I'm buying it, so I want to buy like I have the cash on Venmo. I don't have any crypto. I would, do I start by sending the Venmo transaction and then I receive someone else's escrowed dollar, like USDC? The current flow is you, you start, the, the first step is you have to like put the money into escrow, right? So, cause we don't, we want to avoid any race condition here, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say there's 10, like there's a deposit that has $10 left in it and there's like, person A and person B, and they both coincidentally want to on-ramp at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so they both send $10 to the depositor. And then it, and then it just becomes like, a, okay, who submits their on-chain order first mm. uh, to get that $10? And so, so somebody's going to end up out 
$10, essentially. Mm -hmm. So the escrow step needs to happen first. But this is the depositor sending it to you. Like, you don't have any USDC. So they're they're putting this USDC into escrow for you, I guess. So there's there's kind of two steps, yeah. So the depositor is first what we call like depositing funds into the smart contract. Yeah. And this is this you can almost think of this as like providing Uniswap liquidity. Mm-hmm. So they're just depositing some sort of liquidity and they're defining a rate that they yeah. want for it. And then when the on-ramper comes to say like I want to get $10 on chain, mm-hmm. they're then like taking a portion of that deposit and putting it in escrow. I see. Okay. Yeah. That's the way, it's just sort of the terminology that you're using. So in this case, the user who's on-ramping is grabbing a piece and putting it for themselves in escrow. Correct. And then they're sending the transaction, proving that they've sent the transaction on Venmo through this email and the the copy-paste or the Google auth. And at that moment that it's proven, the escrowed USDC on-chain unlocks. And is it then sent to their account on-chain? Yep. It's then sent to their account. Cool. And you can even specify like another account you want it to be sent to. Mm. Um, and we're, you know, we're constantly kind of trying to improve this experience. Obviously, there's like a lot of steps there. Yeah. Um, so trying to, you know, reduce the amount of steps or, you know, one thing will be, uh, well, probably by the time this podcast airs that we'll have out is a fully built-in kind of account abstraction flow there. So you now, so that essentially allows us to pay for your on-ramp. Mm. So now you don't even have to have crypto on-chain to on-ramp. So so right now, to to do that initial kind of like... Ah, you still... Do you have to pay the gas or something? Yeah, you, need, you still oh, need to shit. pay the gas. Oh, shit, okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so okay. We're, we're now taking this like, all right, we want to make this so that if you've never touched crypto before, yeah. you can get money on-chain. Um, and so that we'll hopefully have that here in the next by the time this this is released. Oh, cool. Yeah, wow, this is so interesting. Like these steps and sort of the way you've architectured this, it is different than I expected. I, for some reason, thought there was like things being sent in parallel, but it's not quite that. It's the user having to do something on-chain and this is where they would need some sort of ETH for gas, I guess. Mm-hmm. So they already have to be like an on-chain savvy entity to be able to initiate this. Um, but it sounds like, yeah, the real goal of this is to on-ramp non-crypto users so far, right? Yeah. Would you end up, like, if you're talking about covering the gas fees, do you just have to pay it yourself? Or is there, like, a way for you to get these fees covered? Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately, certainly longer term, when volume picks up, that's something that we'll probably have to take a small a small portion just to, mm. <laughs> just to cover the costs of doing that. Yeah. Actually, quick question. The... The 50 basis point fee right now goes directly to the liquidity provider, right? Correct. Do you ever imagine a, a version where like some fraction of that actually goes to pay future gas fees for new users? So like it's like a protocol fee, but it's literally only used for for paying mm. for future gas. So that way it's like, okay, if you have more user flow, then it makes it cheaper for the new users. Kind of a good type of Ponzi scheme. <laughs> in some ways, right? Because <laughs> all it's really doing is like I don't endorse that. that, uh, <laughs> that, that <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Description. I didn't mean to. Freudian slip. Freudian slip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, ab- absolutely. I think I do think that's that makes a ton of sense. Um, uh, you know, at some point, we we do in the protocol have 
what we've even termed a sustainability fee um, that you know could be added to do things like pay for gas. Yeah, I, I suppose that that would be a big portion because that could just get sent directly to the paymaster that is that is being used uh, to to do the kind of account abstraction of four three three seven onboarding. Why did you choose Venmo specifically? What was the reason for that? To me, it's a very U.S. product. Like, we, yeah. no one uses it in Europe, really. So, yeah, I was curious why you, you chose that. A couple of things. First, like, all of these products are pretty regionalized. Mm. So there's not really a global, necessarily global payment system. There's some that have, you know, WISE has, has you know, it's true has its um, system set up in, in other countries, but a lot of these are, are hyper, hyper localized. It's all just like one country. It's like one, because all the banking rails are, are pretty localized. But to, to your original question of like why Venmo, honestly, I think a lot of it is just three of us are US based and this is still like new tech. This is still like, you know, we need to be able to quickly iterate and like yeah. figure out how to how to make this work. And so as a starting point, it made the most sense for for us is just like easy because we can now do all sorts of transactions and figure out the best way to make it happen. Mm. Uh, we do have a we released UPI, uh, UPI integration a week ago, a little over a week ago now, uh, which is the kind of Indian banking rails. And so we integrated a, a, a pretty big bank there that also sends confirmation emails. Obviously, that's another cool. dependency for what we do yeah. is like, are there confirmation emails? And are the confirmation emails data rich? So mm. we would love to integrate stuff like WISE, for example. But yeah. the, the, the emails you get back aren't, aren't data rich enough or wow. they just don't even, don't even exist, right? Huh. Had you thought about PayPal? Because that to me is also like that is worldwide or at least pretty worldwide and like yeah but yeah i don't know what their emails look like i know they send a lot of emails but i don't know <laughs> if they're like appropriate yeah it's not data rich okay That's the only you had reason. to look <laughs> it's interesting this model though of like having sort of a web 2 payment flow happening and then a concurrent web 3 one so the first time i had actually heard any model like that was gnosis pay like, do you know about this? The credit card that Gnosis recently released. So they also, I mean, they are working with Visa and they're able to, like, there's a Visa credit card, but the actual movement of funds under the hood, are ha it's happening on Gnosis chain. So, like, you're basically tapping into your Gnosis holdings when you're using this credit card directly. Um, unlike something like Crypto.com, where there was like, a t you know, a centralized entity holding your Bitcoin XYZ. In this case, there's an action on chain as well. Um, so there's a, for me, there's a little bit of a parallel here. Mm. I don't know if, if they're actually using ZK. So that's a big difference. And in this case, it does seem like like it sounds like it's going to be quite easy for you to add extra products, like extra payment entities if they have this data rich email. But I do wonder about the, that, like, changing email interface or this, like, brittleness. Are you worried that you might kind of start implementing it in all of these different products and then, like, you know, every week one of them changes and you're kind of chasing that down? Is this, like, a bit of a fear of, like, the sustainability of this model? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely. <laughs> this. Yeah. And to that extent, I think we're always looking at what are other ZK primitives we can use you know, ZK like data primitives that we can use too. So email right now is probably the best well formed, right? The mm. ZK email team's done like an incredible job. And so it's like pretty easy to integrate. Part of our background is we're all grant funded. 
And so the majority of our grants have come from uh, PSE, which is the Privacy Scaling mm-hmm. uh, Explorations Group within the Ethereum Foundation. And uh, one of the other teams there as well is, is TLS Notary. Oh, yes. And they're essentially trying to do ZK proofs of, of TLS certificates. Mm. That we're, we're constantly kind of looking at, okay, what are these other things we can potentially try to integrate, you know? Mm. JWTs, you know, in anything that that's signed, any signed data that we can potentially get our hands on um, to help facilitate some of these off-chain to on-chain mm. swaps. I want to add a little on that TLS notary note. In that case, in the Venmo case, like if a transaction is made, is there any sort of TLS certificate? No, right? Because it's like it's all in the centralized database. But they do publish it somehow, right? So if you think about services like plaid they are getting assigned payload from venmo that like something happened because like they're offering some service to a bank or something that says like you have a certain amount of money Ah. so it's clear that there is someone publishing with enough certificates Hmm. this data the question is whether it's like easily accessible to the end user and so they could create the proof themselves like like that's the thing that i think is the real question it, it exists somewhere, right? Like Plaid is mm-hmm. doing it. And like, there's a bunch of these kind of data providers who are definitely doing it. So, you know, the question is like, where, what's the injection point? And like, can you make that pain as painless as possible for the user? Right. And have no fear. We're trying to uncover it. <laughs> we, are, we are digging. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is so cool. I mean, it's, it's interesting because it also reveals how opaque the traditional like payments are. Like you're kind of reliant on these emails but it would be so much nicer, obviously, if some if there was some sort of like access by outside people to some of this information without obviously revealing amounts or whatever, but just so that you could use something to prove that a transaction had happened. The ideal scenario for us is a signed endpoint, right? Like if, if Venmo just like had an endpoint where they signed transaction history. Yeah. Um, and like a user could just give, you know, potentially give us like a read key for example, Mm -hmm. that would be the ideal scenario. Cause then we can even do all that from our front end, just like Mm -hmm. grab it. It doesn't have to be this whole like, all right, you either Google auth or go like pass the copy paste your email in like that sort of thing. But that that would be uh, the the pretty ideal scenario. Wow. Right. But at that point they're making an Oracle for you. (laughs) Right. No, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can really think a lot of this is just like it's an oracle, like some sort of, that's a great way to put it. And like our inputs into the oracle right now are just like emails. <laughs> and and we, we do a proof of that email to, to prove that you have possession of that email, right? Couldn't you use this also for like cross-chain stuff as I'm thinking about this? Like, could you use it if you wanted to have sort of actions happening on one, one chain and then have some escrow happening on the other. Maybe it's like a, the wrong use case because I know you're focused very much on on-ramp, off-ramp, but like, would, wouldn't it be quite easy in that case to do it? There are ZK bridges. I don't know if they work exactly that way, though. I don't know if no, this No, no, is... the, the ones that do the escrow are slower. So it's like, it, there's sort of, you're, you have some late, some design decision trade-offs with mm. trying to do this. This way you have to do for off-chain stuff, like there's basically no, yeah. but when you're on-chain, you can add more constraints and covenants to make it different. So, so I don't, I think you, you could do it, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't make as much sense. Okay. Yeah. To an extent we are kind of building a bridge, but yeah, from Venmo or UPI to, I guess, an L2. So I, 
I actually want to dive into the UPI piece a bit, you know, as someone who every time I go to India, I'm like, wow, it's the most advanced fintech. It's like <laughs> hilarious that like, you know, like nothing else works, like no electricity and water are always shut off and all this stuff. But like <laughs> the fintech stuff there is like everyone is paying digitally and like you can't even use cash to go on the subway anymore. Whoa. It's like definitely ahead of, of like everywhere else in Asia too nowadays. So like I, I think like that user base is super into purely digital payments. Um, so like how are you thinking about that kind of market? And, you know, because like, yeah, f for instance, I was in India in like December of last year. And I remember I like couldn't use any public transit without without having a UPI account, <laughs> but you can't get a UPI account unless you're a citizen oh right my now. God. So you're kind of like locked out and like then you have to like find someone to like pay for you. And like there are all these apps <laughs> where a UPI holder can like take credit cards oh <laughs> and pay on behalf of you. So I, I feel like there's clearly this whole world of like pseudo smart contracts in the UPI system that people have built for like doing loans for doing like all sorts of stuff. So it's like way more almost crypto than like 99% of these other fintech things. So I'm kind of curious how you think about interfacing with that system and like expanding into it. Yeah, I mean, I, a, I wish Sachin was on was here. Sachin, our, you know, one of the other team members, he's, he's based in India and, and really I can try to kind of relay some of what he sees. Uh, and I know he's he's definitely thinking about, okay, how can we use this for like, not just like on-ramping funds, but like, how can I pay merchants via something like this? So I, I, you know, pay in stables, but the merchant receives like, you know, rupees or something like that, right? Mm. And then there's also just this whole, you know, they kind of just recently bi banned Binance P2P. Oh. <laughs> uh, and so there's this, also this whole other market of like, they're looking for alternatives. And obviously we're in an interesting place potentially alternative wise. But then the other thing is the way UPI works is you're kind of like directly hooked into the the, the banking system rails. Hmm. And it seems there isn't, there isn't as much like with Venmo, there's some sort of inheritance of the KYC, right? So every Venmo user has been KYC'd. Mm -hmm. With UPI, you just have a UPI ID, right? So while we are using a bank to get like the confirmation emails, the on-ramper side of the transaction is just sending a transaction from their UPI kind of like address account, however you want to think about it. Mm -hmm. And so now there's this like additional layer. And this is something we're just starting to unpack a little bit as we really launched UPI and like we're having a little bit of trouble getting people to provide liquidity and it's because oh well the people that are sending you funds are potentially kind of not fully KYC'd mm. so then it's like okay well, well what can we do to kind of reduce potential exposure for people who are kind of facilitating these on-ramps mm. Th those seem kind of like the bigger hurdles that we need to attack in the shorter term is like and luckily there are people working on it like there's a non-adhar mm -hmm. which i think is, is that richard is that another psc project yeah i think so yeah it's a psc project we're all just like piecing it together yeah. <laughs> but yeah so now it's like okay well what can we do to provide some level of comfort and kyc for these for people who want to potentially deposit um, because otherwise like the indian government if you have like tainted funds they may just come and like shut down your bank account. And then you have to like manually go and say like, 
hey, you know, this was just yeah. like a crypto transaction, you know? Yeah. So, so the kind of crazy thing, I guess, like for people who have are listening and maybe are not familiar with UPI, you could basically think of the Indian government runs like arguably a an blockchain L2. effectively. Yeah. An L2 run, yeah. run by the different states in India where they come to, uh, agreement on like the notion of an ID. So every time a new person's born, every time a new cell phone is added into the network, because it's tied to your cell phone, um, they make a new public key, private key pair. And that pri public private key pair is shared across all the services you might use. So wow. maybe you make a bank account, maybe you get another cell phone, maybe you like, maybe you pay your utility bill, like all of this, maybe you use the subway, all of this is tied to the same identity. This is why you basically have something like smart contracts where you can like someone can write some covenants against your identity and say like, hey, this person is lending me this amount of money. And like if they don't, then like freeze their account. Mm -hmm. So they kind of have a very rudimentary smart contract system. You can't do arbitrary code, but like you can do much more than, say, like in China. But the problem is, yeah, this is like a persistent public key private pair. You can't really leave it if that makes sense. And so like losing it is like very difficult, right? It's like, it's you're, you're, you're stuck with it forever. Yeah. So there's sort of this question of like, the reason you want this, uh, not anonymity, but with maybe with some proof that you're not like, you know, of some properties of yourself is just so that you don't like have to l have this risk of like being locked out of the system completely. Yeah. If that makes sense. Wow. And that that's that's sort of where the, the this stuff comes in. It, it, that's where it's kind of scary when you even just go as a foreigner to India and you like can't use any f service because wow. like, you don't have one of these IDs. Like that was the first time I'd ever felt that dystopian thing. Is there any privacy guarantees on the UPI side? No, no, no. All of these things are pur purposely made to have no privacy. Wow. Right? Like they're government systems like PIX in Brazil, UPI, FedNow, they all are. I mean... I would say Brazil and India are probably the top two in the sense of like they basically have smart contracts, like okay. like limited smart contract function. Like you can be a developer and write some code against wow. their identity APIs and like you can make like pooled assets across multiple accounts. And it's they're the only places in the world that do that. Like in China, they're very restrictive about pooling assets. Like you can't write something that's like take these three UPI accounts, take $10 from all of them and write something that distributes per rata. But in in picks and and UPI you can so I I kind of think but the interest that that's why it's interesting to me about things like zkp2p where it's like I have a system that's kind of not private and has some limited smart contract functionality and I have a system that's private and has full smart contract functionality and like how should they interface that's mm -hmm. kind of like the you know because like I think like interfacing with something that's just like bank accounts no contract functionality makes it harder. But you can imagine a version of ZKP2P where the liquidity providers on the UPI side, not in the US side, not the Venmo side, you could actually just like pool together a bunch of UPI accounts and they act as the liquidity on the other side. And, and like you, you actually could do that in that system, right? So it's, it's, it's like it has, has some kind of cool benefits, which is why I was kind of curious how you guys are thinking yeah. about that. Yeah, I think, I think so far we're still kind of thinking about things as, as kind of like this more very like peer-to-peer -peer construction less than like necessarily pooling assets together uh obviously like i think once you start getting the pooling assets side there's probably like some form of like legal entity or and things like that that need, that need to be set up mm. um so right now just kind of where we're at we're, we're looking at at it at a very very peer-to-peer -peer. but yeah i mean i think that 
I, I am definitely personally in, in awe of, of kind of like the the functionality they've built into to UPI. And I think while there is kind of like this kind of like you alluded to this little like dystopian side to it, mm. um, yeah. <laughs> it is it is like incredibly powerful. Basically, anybody can start a fintech <laughs> there like pretty mm. fast. Um, so the, the the pace of innovation that's enabled by it is is pretty awesome. And I guess this just speaks to the power of blockchains, <laughs> right? It's like, right, okay, right, now right. let's, this is like a now shitty let's add the <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Now let's add the pseudonymity <laughs> part to it and fully like functional smart contracts. And you're like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> now, now we're ready to rock and roll. So I want to hear where the team is at today, who's on the team, what you've just recently built, what's planned. Yeah, where's the project at? Um, yeah, so we're, we're still the four of us, as I kind of alluded to earlier, we're all grant funded. So if there's anybody that is giving out grants and is interested in funding the work that we're doing, feel free to reach out. <laughs> yeah. So at, at the moment, that's kind of our construction and kind of how we're trying to, to move forward. I, I kind of mentioned probably by the time this, this podcast is out, we'll have this, this gasless unramping. The way we're are kind of like default for the moment is like, okay, how can we get close to kind of like Binance P2P type feature parity and, and like obviously better, ideally. Like there's a mm. lot of, we hear a lot of complaints about Binance P2P. Um, and so for us, it's like, okay, well, what do we need to, to do that? And this account abstraction type of gasless on-ramping is, is one portion of that. And then we're looking to add in things like uh, bridges. So since we're doing 4337, we can batch transactions together. So now it's not just, okay, you can get USDC on base. Maybe it's, oh, you can get, you know, in one transaction, you can get uh, USDT on, you know, Matic or USDT mm. on Tron, which is maybe sounds uh, heretical, but USDT on Tron is like the biggest stablecoin market out there. Yep. Actually, I wondered, had anyone asked you to do that? Has that been like a request? Um, I'm sure somebody's like asked. I, it's one of those things I think we know at some point probably needs to like, and it, it's, I think it's very dependent on the market yeah. as well. So I think, uh, I'm not sure India is as much that, but definitely. So like Turkey is a big one. Um, Iran. Around well, the, the one that I'm not might sure we're going to go annoying. there. <laughs> yeah, 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 but but yeah, yeah, yeah. That but that might be one of your reasons. Mm. USDT on Tron's hard actually, is mm. like the it is it is the a significant portion of the usage is yeah. from Iran. So like if you if you have to deal with any regulated thing, it's probably yeah. That's that's very fair. Yeah, I mean like Turkey is a Turkey South South America does a lot of USDT on Tron. I think uh, Africa as well. Mm. So it's like pretty proliferated all to say so we're looking to kind of add now how can you get all this money this money anywhere and then obviously the other thing you can do is potentially you could just swap directly to like non-stable cryptos as well right so you could kind of almost like buy eth from venmo if you wanted we're back to local bitcoins honestly that like that's how i've been describing <laughs> how i'd be kind of been describing this to a lot of people at the beginning it's like this is local bitcoins but you don't have to meet some dude like in public <laughs> like it's i mean that's a very that's a very killer description uh, yeah. honestly um uh, yeah is so that, that's a, kind of close to what we're building right so that's kind of like our guiding light but we're still like really early and there's still 
all of these new primitives, new like constructions you could potentially think of. So we're, we're going to experiment. Yeah, it's, it's too early to be like, we're focused on how do we facilitate on-ramps, but we're not going to be biased by like, it has to be just emails and, you know, we only want to facilitate like a certain type of like on-ramp. Like we, we want to just run a bunch of experiments for different, like potentially end users. Our protocols vary like on-ramper focus, like how, what would like a very off-ramper focus look like? And so, you know, obviously we need to do that within, you know, there's four of us. So we need to do that within like the realm of reason. Um, but that's really, I would say kind of how we're looking at things going forward. It's basically how we can increase limits right now. Like our protocol, it's like 250 uh, USDC or 100 USDC for UPI every 12 hours. So very low limits. So how, how can we do that in a very safe way? How can we raise limits? like while reducing fraud at the same time as Brian kind of alluded to earlier. And yeah, a lot of these improvements, I think in the pipeline will hopefully help us test some of these hypotheses that we have. Very cool. You also continue to go to hackathons. I've seen you participated in ETH India. What did you, did you build that UPI kind of connection there? That was probably a Sachin thing. <laughs> Sachin loves hackathons. <laughs> yeah, that was Sachin. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so he uh, actually built... I think it was, yeah, it was UPI, but um, using TLS notary okay. uh, as the backend versus like ZK email. So yeah, all these hackathons kind of help fund our exploration <laughs> into what we should build next. Yeah, no, we definitely uh, are excited to try to kind of get out to some of these events this year. I mean, it's, it's cool. especially like, I remember going back to kind of talking about early ETH days was like, that's where a lot of the magic came together. It was just chilling with people just people who are nerding out on stuff at <laughs> at conferences and hackathons and yeah. like the community is still so small that it's like it's small and it's open and there's not like a bunch of pretense around like people trying to push like a product or a protocol it's all it's just a bunch of people trying to hack cool things together still which is really awesome about the zero knowledge community at the moment like like this tech is incredible and at some point it's going to become a little bit more like some of these, you know, probably Ethereum conferences, probably not necessarily your conference. I'm, I'm not going to say it, but like, <laughs> but, but just like, you know, it's going to become more commercialized, like just the, the industry mm -hmm. as a whole. And in some ways that's great because it's going to push a lot of the innovation forward. We're going to get to a point where, oh, I can run my ZK P2P proof on my machine in seconds versus 10 to 15 minutes, but there's going to be mm -hmm. some of these other, like, you know, the collaboration is going to get a little harder, like those sorts of, you're going to have to find like your ring of people instead of just being like, everyone is like big tent. Yeah. You yeah. Know? So what you're saying is ZK is still underground. ZK is yeah. still, ZK is still pretty, pretty <laughs> underground. Good. <laughs> it's kind of hard to imagine the ZK world reaching the level of like, say, roll-ups fighting with each other, but I I, I just like, I don't know, I guess I could see it, but yeah. it's like, it's just like almost impossible for me to imagine. Right but now. some of those teams, those roll-ups are ZK teams too. So I feel like, I mean, yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. maybe that's an true. image of the future. I guess that's where the, um, whether they're bad or good habits will percolate down from. I, I'll say this. The one thing that zero knowledge research and proofs as a whole have going for it is it, it's not just like a decentralized tech 
right? It's great for decentralizing things, but there's very real Web2 applications to it too, right? So it doesn't necessarily need to be all this like speculative money that's funding it. There actually is very legitimate use cases from very, I don't want to say some money is more legitimate than others, but from from money that's not necessarily looking to like pump, dump, do all the like, you yeah. know crazy crypto things. So that, that'll be like an interesting kind of like counterbalance potentially to ZK going forward. Although I do think, I think D ZK's um, acceleration was definitely because of some of this sort of proximity to blockchain and... 100%. And I mean, if I, if I look at ZKP2P, right, like arguably one of the main reasons for the ZK versus like a, a non-ZK version is it, it really is go good at getting around like a particular set of systems that already exist. Mm. And like, I feel like that subversive element is still going to be true with a lot of ZK stuff. But I guess that's more to crypto's original ethos versus like the current state, right? Yeah. No, I mean, I, that's honestly one of like my big takeaways over the last year is just how much ZK P2P kind of speaks to the original reasons people got into crypto, <laughs> actually, sure. which has been really cool to see is like, there is like this subversive element to it. And um, yeah, I think there's like a lot of people that like you explain it to and they start to understand it. They're like, oh my God, this kind of like reminds me of some of the reasons or like some of the the, the ethos of why I really wanted to get into to crypto in the first place. And that's uh, that's honestly just been been really cool to see, just this, especially a bunch of people that have maybe been around since like 2017 and seen kind of how things have changed a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's always been kind of like gratifying to, to see people's kind of reaction to that. Well, I want to say thank you to both of you for coming on and shit. Like this is like a proper ZK application and one of the few out there where you can tangibly use it and touch it as a, as an end user. I think it's really exciting what you've built. I'm obviously really happy that you built the first version of it at, at the ZK Hack <laughs> Hackathon. Um, <laughs> we kind of didn't expect that. We didn't know that, like, from the first one, there would actually be, you know, someone running with it. But, yeah, it's really great to, to get to hear more about the project and what you're thinking. Well, thanks for having us on. As Richard said in, in the intro, uh, you know, long-time listener, first-time caller. So it's, 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 uh, <laughs> it's, it's really great to be here. And, yeah, thanks, thanks for providing the platform to, to do ZK Hack as well, you know. Um, that's why you do hackathons, I, I guess, is yeah. it inspires people to, to build interesting stuff. So, um, yeah. It's like the next phase of the, of the ecosystem, I think. It feels like we're getting there. Yeah. Now people can start building things. Yeah. 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 Just get the tooling better and better and better and make it more and more accessible <laughs> and it, it'll get there. You know, it, it will. Cool. Yeah. Just echoing all of Brian's, what Brian said. And thanks for putting out all the resources <laughs> as well such as the whiteboarding sessions <laughs> to help like someone like me or us uh, get started. So yeah, thanks for that. Cool, cool. All right. Well, thank you, Tarun, for being on this one. Hey, thanks for, for chatting. Obviously, extremely excited. The UPI stuff to me is the most interesting part, maybe due to personal reasons, <laughs> but I, I just feel like <laughs> it's going to be kind of like that's got to be the most interesting usage of ZK ever. Cool. Nice. All right. Thanks again. And I want to say thank you to the podcast team, Henrik, Rachel, and Tanya, and to our listeners. Thanks for listening. Thanks.